Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. But in general, whatever it is, I've just made sure I have a, a system set up to accommodate spontaneity, flexibility, and just uh, a lot of improv. Because in general, we do, you know, I write the scripts really tight. And then in the session, we kind of just go nuts. But in my head, I'm directing while I'm acting in it. And I know what I really need. I know what bits we have to get. So sometimes it it seems more chaotic and more improv than it really is because it's like it goes off the rails there. Then in the edit, I pull it right back to the script, except along the way, we picked up some good unexpected jokes and just a general sense of spontaneity. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. Hope you had a great Thanksgiving break with your family and friends and loved ones. Hope you have a tremendous, tremendous December holiday season with everyone you know. Looking forward to that and the new year. But something I'm looking forward to a lot, too, is this episode with an incredible, incredible guy. You're going to learn so much and be so inspired by what this guy does, how he does it, and how he got started. It's truly incredible. And I'm talking about Steve Dildarian. Before I get started, if you need to get a hold of me, you can do so at Barry Katz at Twitter or Instagram. Or you can do so by reaching me on my website at barrycats.com. And without further ado, let me introduce our special guest. Steve Dildarian is an American former advertising copywriter. But recently, in the past 10 or 15 years, has been the creator, writer, and producer and voice of two really, really impactful animated series. The first being... The voice of Tim in the HBO animated television series, The Life and Times of Tim. More recently, he's also the star, writer, executive producer, director, and creator of the HBO Max series that's on right now streaming, 10-Year-Old Tom, 
During his advertising career, he worked for several ad agencies, including BBDO and Goodby Silverstein Partners. In 2006, Dildarian created an animated short film after not even knowing how to work in animation called Angry Unpaid Hooker, which in his first try won him the best animated short competition at the U.S. Comedy and Arts Festival and was the impetus and inspiration for the life and times of Tim. Dildarian's animation is always characterized by a raw, minimalistic, two-dimensional style similar to Mike Judge's Beavis and Butthead series. His most recent series, 10-Year-Old Tom, is an incredible show that follows the misadventures of an average kid as he contends with questionable guidance from the well-meaning grown-ups around him. As we know, being a kid's hard enough, but for Tom, when bad influence seemed to lurk around every corner, from litigious parents to drug-dealing bus drivers to school administrators who want to sleep with his mom, it's downright impossible. <laughs> While the adults in Tom's life certainly mean well, they just can't manage to lead by example. Dildarian plays the lead character Tom alongside a talented cast of actors and comedians, including Byron Bowers, Todd Glass, Jillian Jacobs, Edie Patterson, and incredible special appearances by Jennifer Coolidge, Natasha Leone, Tim Robinson, George Wallace, David Duchovny, and of course, John Malkovic. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome my special guest for today. Get ready to be inspired. Please welcome Steve Dildarian. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much, man. I have so many questions to ask you. Great. The first question I have to ask you is, animation is its own muscle it's a different thing i look at it like stand-up comedy in a way and i'll explain okay so there's the guys who plant their feet and sling the jokes like the rodney dangerfields okay there's the bill burrs who walk around the stage and tell stories okay there's the jeff rosses who go and roast people on a dais there's the people who are phenomenal on a talk show. They sit on the couch and they panel and they make it look seamless. Animation is almost like this interesting thing that it's its own animal and you have to figure out how to write for it in a way that is much different than writing for live action. When I think of comedy, and I always relate comedy to everything because that's where I started. To me, there's very few stand-up comedians that are equivalent to a cartoon character. And when I say a cartoon character, I'm sorry, that seems antiquated. An animated character on a show. But in a lot of older animation, the animated characters in the show, there's things that happen with them that are so unbelievably unreal, but yet we go with it because it's animation. So example, Brad Williams, who's a four foot four comedian, yeah. a, a little person, when he does his stand-up, he can say things and do things because it feels like it's not even real. So he can talk about 
that disability, how he goes out in the world, how people talk to him, what he yeah. does. And he can even tell stories of the simplest little things that he would think were inconsequential, like going into a store and taking some Keebler cookies off the shelf and just walking out of the store and the guy's saying, hey, what are you doing? And he says, hey, we make these and just walk <laughs> out, you know? So, yeah, yeah. so I want you to share with our audience what is truly in your definition the different way you have to write for an animated show versus how people have to write for a live action show is there a philosophy is there a foundational blueprint for how mm. to make it successful where it doesn't work in live action it's but it works in animation it's an interesting question for me because for better or worse there's no difference whatsoever uh when i first got into animation i had never done animation i had never thought about it or cared about it i wrote a short film six minutes short called angry unpaid hooker i just thought it was this funny idea i had and it angry got, unpaid angry hooker. unpaid hooker and it was just a funny quick little thing and it sat in my computer for like a year and I kept thinking, how am I going to shoot this? I got a—I wasn't really a director, but I kept thinking about directing. And uh, I was working in advertising at the time. And out of just impatience more than anything, I said, why don't I try to animate this? And really just as if animation had never existed, I tried to figure out if we could do it. So me and my girlfriend just sat there frame by frame in iMovie, started drawing, coloring, and stringing things together. Uh, but to answer your question, this was all based on a live action short that when I acted it out, it was me talking to you the way I'm talking right now. There was nothing different about any step of the process for it being a live action show or, or an animated show. And then I'm jumping way ahead about a year, but we sold the show. We're making it for HBO. And one of my, not mandates, but goals in the staff was I didn't want anyone working on it that had worked in animation before. I wanted a bunch of people coming at it like I was, open mind, just treat it, because I wanted it to feel real and grounded. Because like I said, I didn't really have an opinion about animation. It wasn't my interest or my world. So when I got into it, I said, I don't want any animation people around because I just had a hunch that they were going to bring baggage with them. Not, not to sound insulting, but people are great at doing their craft. But at the time, it wasn't my world. So I didn't, I didn't want it around me. So making that show, in the, especially in the beginning, I was adamant on just real, 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 grounded, treat it like live action in every way. Uh, so it's a roundabout way of, of saying there's zero difference. For some people, there might be a huge, profound difference. But uh, for me, if I sense that someone's putting on their animation hat when they work on the show, especially as a writer... I headed off at the pass real quick and I'm like, all right, rein it in, ground it. Don't don't treat it like animation because we're not making animation here. It just happens to be animated. Let's, let's talk about that for a second. Yeah. Okay. So again, I'm I'm not an expert on this as you are. It could be argued one of the greatest animated shows and most successful animated shows of all time. The Simpsons. Yeah. Second most 
probably profitable animated show and successful show, Family Guy. Yeah. Unless I'm losing my balance, they don't seem grounded whatsoever. No, they're not. And those shows and the people who make them, uh, who, who might have critiqued them, like I said, they're the, some of the most famous successful shows out there. And they would refute everything that I just said. We would have no common ground. And it is what it is. I'm doing my thing. They're doing their thing. If my work ever rises to that level, great. If it doesn't, great. But I'm doing my work and I'm staying in my lane. And I'm not really that interested, quite frankly. It's just, I'm, all I'm interested in is what I'm doing. And if it serves my voice as a writer and a person, and if I'm telling my stories, that's all I can do in this world. So I'm not really comparing myself to anybody, even if it is The Simpsons. It's just irrelevant, really. I presume because you decided to do animation there had to be some animated shows that inspired you. What were they? For me, can I just share something? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and this is where you're going to be shocked, as, because I said what I said two minutes ago. My favorite animated show of all time is Johnny Quest. I know the name. I don't know the show. Well, Johnny Quest was an old show about these group of people that went out and almost in a science fiction way um, took down evil people that were doing bad things in the world. But everybody was drawn normally and everybody talked normally and there wasn't anything that you couldn't believe would happen in real action. Yeah. It was a dramatic show. Okay. It wasn't funny. There are comedies that I would think share a sensibility to mine that are successful. Well, I, can I say one that I think yeah. it, it doesn't share the sensibility in a sense. It's not in the same lane as yours. But I feel like Dr. Katz was a show yeah. that's very similar in tone in the sense that it's real exactly. as yours is. Dr. Katz was the first TV spec I ever wrote because at the time when it was on TV and even back then I had, again, it was probably the only animated show I ever watched. And the reason was I watched it and I just, I was looking at it just like, where, who made this? Where did it come from? Because it felt so out of the system. It felt like... Squiggle vision. Yeah. I think that together with the nature of the voice tracks just felt really unpolished, really just like a bunch, felt to me like a, like a bunch of friends were hanging out, screwing around, making something. And it showed on the screen and I just loved... I think without even caring about the business end of it, I was so riveted by who made this? How did it get on TV? Because it was so confident in what it was doing that was completely unlike everything else. And I loved it for that reason. And uh, so, yeah, like I said, I wrote a, a screen. And John Benjamin's so great. And he's got a similar deadpan delivery that I think I would later start to develop my own confidence in, in doing. Uh, but, you know, that was the first thing I wrote. And then, you know, South Park wasn't too, it must have been a little behind it, but not by much. Uh, and that too, and it's, it's a very different way. It's a much louder, crazier show. But again, the complete lack of caring about the rules, the way animation is done, everything is out the window in the way they make the show, the way they draw it, uh, 
you know, you've probably seen the thing where they make the show in one week. And so anything that's a rule or a, a way of doing things, they're just like, everyone shut up. We're going to set up our our space and uh, and make it our way. And so on that level, I just react to that. And so I think those were, I don't know if you call it inspiration because there's doesn't share too much in common with my show, but our producer was from South Park and she, I think, got it, got what I was trying to do because of that. She was used to being in that environment with those kind of creators that just wanted to do their own thing. So she helped me get my show off the ground. I always think about this when I see animated shows where the animation is more... I don't know what you'd say when you say less produced yeah. than others. Why is it with animation we accept Speed Racer, we accept Dr. Katz, we accept your shows, but like if you were to go to a movie and you were to see Mission Impossible and... Yeah. You could tell that there's a, a green screen <laughs> in the background yeah. and whatever. It could be argued that you'd be disappointed. Or if you saw a comedy special where it wasn't lit properly, the way it was shot wasn't as clear as it could be, and the editing wasn't as strong as it could be, you might not yeah. possibly like it as much. But in animation, we rally around it and we like it. South Park. Why do you think that is? Never, Why don't we care? It's interesting. I haven't thought about it too much, but in general, like a movie, a live action film, since it is literally reality on screen, you aren't forgiving of it because it's the world we live in. Animation, the nature of it is just representational of the real world. It's it's suggesting reality. So your brain is filling in the gaps. Just it's the same difference when you're reading a novel or watching a movie. Your imagination is finishing the equation. If you're looking at uh, a character in an animated show, your the voice coming out of it, together with the imagery and the suggestion of the background, your brain is kind of finishing it and filling in the gaps and saying that's a living, breathing world, even though it's clearly not. It's it's a uh, an interesting thing, you know. I, a whole different conversation, but I got into all kind of kind of things about the power of the mind and the way you're you ever see these quizzes where the way your brain finishes equations and just the way you process the world around you animation is doing that on some level it's the reason you can take like i'm playing a 10 year old kid in my show and no one questions it some people might make a crack about it but as you're watching it you accept it you'll get lost in it and you're just in the world because whatever it is, this image, together with this sound design, together with that voice, you just, uh, you, you buy it. So I think... Hey, everybody. I hope you're enjoying this episode as much as I am. If you made it this far and you haven't fallen asleep yet, then you must be the type of person who's serious about having a career in the comedy business. That's why I'm offering you my blueprint for success a one-of-a-kind all-access pass into my knowledge and experience after over 40 years of working with the best of the best in this crazy entertainment industry. I'll tell you all the stories, all the philosophies, 
give you all the great special guests and even give you one-on-one -on -one private consultations to help you expand, enhance, and skyrocket your comedy career. Just go to barrycats.com and click on Blueprint for Success to learn more about my groundbreaking digital academy that I've created just for you. With it, we can take your career so far that one day, instead of listening to this podcast, you'll be interviewed on it. The reason why I buy it, and it's probably for the wrong reason, and because you're going to shut me down and tell me it's the wrong reason, hopefully not, but you may, I buy it because I feel that's you at 10. Okay. And I wouldn't buy it if I didn't feel it was you at 10. Yeah, no, that's an interesting, different angle at it, I suppose, because anything, like in my show, when I make it, I always have a rule that we need to make it real before we make it funny. And that's a version of making it grounded and, and just the tone and whatnot. But in general, even with the artwork, because it's funny, for something that's so crude, I pour over every f pixel on the screen and there's a ton of attention to detail, even though it's crude. Because if something betrays the rules of our world, you would notice it. Just the way you said, you'd notice it in a live action film. If something betrays the aesthetic rules of this show, uh, it does feel careless and it feels like, oh, I'm not in the world anymore. And what I'm always trying to do is let people just get lost in it. You accept it as real. You're immersed in it. The the nature of the dialogue, which just flows like a very conversational, grounded thing. You accept the world for that stretch that you're watching it as real and these characters are living, breathing people. And it's if there's a you know mantra across the board in making the show, it's just that it's just real. And to, to be honest, I I it's not even like I'm saying it like I don't believe it. I I feel it like it's real. These characters, I care about them a lot. I never write down to a character or treat them as a joke. I'm always trying to look at the world through each character's eyes, no matter how misguided they might seem. And at the end of the day, I'm just trying to, you know, tell stories about real modern day life uh, and animation. And this particular style of animation is just the tool that gets me there. It's, it's not something I have a lot of, I've stumbled on having opinions about it, but I don't truly care about it. It's just, it's just a device to tell a story. Did I get it wrong? <laughs> is it your life? Everything in the show, yes, is some version of something I lived. The nature of where it takes place, the nature of the friends, the the people around, the working odd jobs. You know, everything in there is. You can draw a line between a joke and something in my life. Very much. What I was saying is it's not, I don't write it so autobiographical where it's literally storylines and, you know, there's, you'd have to know me and do a much deeper dive to actually connect the dots. Like when my friends or family watch it, they're not constantly saying, oh, that's that, that story I remember, you know, because I'm, to be honest, the version of it that's real, I'm not even aware of when I'm writing. It's just simmering in your brain. It's somewhere under the surface. You know, I'm not consciously trying to write about it. When you create and write, you don't feel like it's 
you know, coming from every pore, you feel it's coming from your subconscious mind I, or your... It's an interesting thing, and it's it's the thing that's driven my whole career. When I sit to write, when I when it goes well, I'm literally not thinking about anything, quite frankly. I try to get to a place where I have an idea I like that feels like it's going to write itself, and I can't keep up with my fingers because it's just coming out. So I'm not thinking about anything. Typically, when I I write my pilots very different. Some I'm sure a lot of people do this, but it's not the norm. But uh, I don't really outline stuff and work on the plot. I'll, if I have an idea, like I'll just start writing the script and see where it goes. And so I'm always very instinct driven and just in the moment, just start writing and all right, what would be funny to happen next? What's funny next? What's funny next? And just kind of get lost in it and kind of follow the story more than lead it. I'm kind of curious where it's going myself as I'm writing. And it doesn't always work. That's a tricky way to write sometimes, but it's worked for me because it it just uh, lets me work on pure instinct and and no craft really, and and see where that where that leads. It's a it's a tricky balancing act to get right, and it's not always doesn't always work. But it's the only thing that's served me well because in the end, all that stuff you mentioned it comes out almost by accident and it almost takes someone else. My girlfriend will point things out all the time and say, Oh my God, I can't believe you're writing about blank. I'm like, Oh wow. Is that, I guess I did do that. Didn't I? And I'm not even aware of it. It just kind of came out because my just, I'm just thinking and writing and spitting things out. And so I think there's a little, especially with this particular idea, it can be a cathartic kind of therapeutic, process. I don't know what I think about half the things in my childhood. I don't have strong memories the way some people do. I've, I'm not great at remembering every little detail. So it's almost interesting uh, to see what shakes out in the scripts. So when I sit down, the only thing in my head is what's funny. Last thing you said is just want to make sure it's funny. And Earlier, you said, I just want to make sure that this feels real life first, funny second. So I just want to make sure I got the order of how you. It's the real thing is more typically something I have to say to other people to critique their work. Because we have a once you're there's a difference between writing a script and overseeing a staff of people. So a lot of times when someone makes choices and it's not me making that choice. I have to course correct and say, oh, no, that's it's a little broad. That's not drawn real. This pose doesn't look any. It could be a million things. The voice track, the casting choice. There's a million ways to make something not real. Typically, it's just not coming from me. I, my instincts are pretty consistent. So the real thing is more something I have to say while we're making the show. Uh, but, yeah, with making it funny... Is it's got to be yeah? That's the only thing. Um, when I'm sitting down to write a script, that's the only thing giving it forward momentum is having an idea that's making me laugh enough to sit down. Because I don't ever sit down if I'm, it's frustrating. Some people do. Every writer will give you a different version of how they like to work. Some say you got to work it this many hours a day and just grind it out and this and that. I don't think I've ever written anything worthwhile when I've felt any sense of frustration. 
or a sense of working even. The, the only things I've ever succeeded at are the things that came completely effortlessly and just felt like silly and I was having fun and making myself laugh. And everyone's different though. Some people have a drastically different take on how to well, work. There's some people who when they're doing when there's a short a shorter order of animation or live action. Some people on rare occasions like to just write every episode themselves. And they don't want anybody, they don't want any staff working on anything. Yeah. That's when they have a longer period of time to, to work with, or the people who are just prolific that we all know that just can write a bunch of stuff. And then, and, and, and they might write each one, but then they might hand it over to certain writers and say, okay, you know, see what you can do to make this better or, or, or maybe help the story or something of that nature. But you do it where you have a, a staff that you've hired. Now, every show is different. Do you like to assign a script to each writer or a couple of writers? Do you like to write all the storylines, the A story, the B story, and break the stories yourself and then hand them to people? Or how do you do that? We don't that? really hand things off. And it's not really a typical writer's room. It's a very small group of like four people. And uh, typically, they don't really even sit in the room that much. We'll have more conversations here and there. I don't have a whole lot of ability or patience to sit in a... I've never done it. It's funny. Some people love it. Sitting in a writer's room all day long, 12 hours. I've literally never done that once. I don't think I've ever sat in a writer's room for more than two hours. Um, but I like having real productive conversations. And that's really valuable to have good writers uh, that we can talk through just to get, get everyone's story ideas, takes on stories, breaking them down. And then go off and go our separate ways to think. And in the end, I'll do a pretty strong pass on the actual writing myself because I haven't had a – my tone is kind of specific and I haven't had too much luck handing it off. Do you ever get shocked sometimes when you hand something off and you get it back and, you, you know, you're just used to always putting your spin on it and then you get it and you're like, damn, <laughs> this is pretty well close to the way I – do it. Has that ever happened? <laughs> Not too much. Oh, you know, it's it's funny. I'm lucky enough to have a lot of really good writers around me. And it's a weird, tricky spot to put them in to even make ask them to try. Because I end up being hypercritical and critiquing them. Like, no one should really be trying to match another writer's style. It's a weird thing to even ask somebody. So I put more of the burden on breaking the stories because that to me is writing, you know, choosing your subject matter and then figuring out where that story goes. That That is the, the by far the hardest part of the work. For me, the dialogue comes pretty natural and easy and fast. So I tend to write a lot of the scripts myself in the end, knowing that the writers did a lot of the heavy lifting to make it easy to write that script, you know, uh, it's maybe it's probably not a typical process, but it, it's a tricky thing when you, you got a specific tone in your head, you know, and it's and then I'm doing the voice and the whole thing has got to be organic. And if as soon as it strays from that, it reeks of it. And Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. 
It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. In live action, especially when you're dealing with comedy talent, and you have Todd Glass as one of the people who voices things on the yeah. show, who is a guy who I would say is the last person I would say is going to read the lines exactly the way they are. <laughs> I don't think he's ever seen so, once. <laughs> so tell our audience how it works in animation when you have somebody who improvs, yet there's people drawing things. And a lot of times when they're doing the voice, Sometimes they do it beforehand. Sometimes they actually see what the character is. So how does your thing work? And how do you work with people who change lines? And how does that work with the okay. animation? Well, no, I, he's stepping into a, a world where I'm changing it as much as he is. So uh, it's all, there's a ton of improv we do. And the structure is very loose in the recording sessions. And I intentionally designed the pipeline of the show to accommodate that. Our animation's workflow doesn't doesn't resemble Simpsons or something like that, where it is rigid and you've got to deliver on the storyboard. Uh, we've got complete freedom, and it really is like a live action edit. An edit on my show, you can, you have infinite ability to change anything you want at all times. You can just keep throwing new lines in. You can ask the actor to reread it. You can put any picture against that you want. So it's complete freedom and it it tees itself up nicely for someone like Todd Glass. So everything is, and again, I'm just saying this for our audience. All the voices are recorded before the animation is drawn. Yeah. Basically we start with the audio track. I mean, they're, they're drawing. It's a kind of simultaneous. Usually it you wouldn't be able to do it simultaneous, but the way we, it gets into a very specific conversation, but uh, we're based, our footage is basically giving an editor footage. Here's the wide, medium, and tight. You have complete editorial control over your shots. So it doesn't matter if it was drawn before or after the audio track. They just have coverage the way a live action editor would have coverage. So we're, you can do it at the same time. You could do it before or after. But in general, whatever it is, I've just made sure I have a, a system set up to accommodate spontaneity, flexibility, and just uh, a lot of improv. Because in general, we do, you know, I write the scripts really tight. 
and in, in the session, we kind of just go nuts. But in my head, I'm directing while I'm acting in it. And I know what I really need. I know what bits we have to get. So sometimes it, it seems more chaotic and more improv-y than it really is. Because it's like it goes off the rails there. Then in the edit, I pull it right back to the script. Except along the way, we picked up some good unexpected jokes and just a general sense of spontaneity, which gets back to the grounded kind of realism thing. You know, it recording it that way where it's not line by line and just, you know, we read as an ensemble in real time. Uh, so it just gives it a fly on the wall kind of feel that I love. And uh, but in the end, I do pull it back kind of where we started to some degree. Do you do table reads? Never. I hate it. Yeah. I I had I did a before I sold this I did a live action pilot for Fox, and uh, it was a typical big table read with twentieth and a whole room full of people and I it was one of the most uncomfortable days of my life. Twentieth is the studio he's talking about. <laughs> yeah, and uh, it was it was exciting and it went well, but I I can't listen to any of my work in front of other people. Uh, and a table read I hate it for that reason and I hate it for it's just the enemy of spontaneity it's like I, I hate everything about it things that kill in a table read might not be funny at all when you watch the show it's the nature of a kind of the energy of the room if, if an actor just sells a joke just by the energy they impart you can make a terrible joke work in a room it's like a weird trick that just by being big, you can get a laugh. And I, I remember sitting there saying, when I'm going through the table read and then the, the testing process, I remember just saying to everybody, when this yields one bad show after another, <laughs> why does everyone still believe in the process? The jokes in the table read probably aren't funny. They're just being made to sound funny in that room. And then in the focus groups, it's the same thing. It's like it scored a whatever, whatever the numbers are, nine point something, or eight point something. And they have nothing but proof year after year after year that that'll probably be terrible. <laughs> yeah, they still believe. Anyway, I'm not going off on Fox. I had a lot of great experiences there and big fans, and it was like a a net good experience, but. When you say table reader, I think it sets something off in me because it really just goes against the idiosyncrasies of the way I like to do things. And I think I've I've been lucky enough to avoid stuff like writers' rooms and table reads and make my work in my own way in my own little corner. When I get a taste of the real world, it, it just kind of bothers me. Looking back at the very beginning. Angry, Monday. unpaid poker. Yeah. Would you be where you are today if you'd have cast that with the best actors, put it together with live action? Would it have been as funny and would your career be where it is today? No, there's no way. Everything about making that, sometimes you have an idea or a moment or whatever it is that just sparks something. When I made that, I knew, I just felt, I didn't know where it was going to take me. I knew it was a ridiculous thing and I, I barely took it seriously, but I could feel it. I just unleashed something because it was taking all these things 
voice acting, which I hadn't really done much of, drawing, which I hadn't done much of, editing, which I'd never done, making animation. It was all, every discipline in it was brand new to me. You have a great job. You're living in New York City. San Francisco at that time. San Francisco, which is one of the most expensive towns in the world. And you're doing pretty well there in yeah. your job. So you have a job, a career. Things are presumably going well. And then you take a risk and you go off and do this. And you have never trained for any skill set needed <laughs> to do what you're doing. Yeah. There is no evidence that you are good at any of those <laughs> skills. There's nothing, except for maybe if you are in advertising, there's evidence that you know how to yeah. work a, a pitch or a slogan, whatever. You know how to put something together to sell to somebody. So chances are, in that world, you know how to put things together that are sellable. Yes. And that people pay money for. So that's your one big skill set at the time. So when you're making this short, this angry, unpaid hooker short, Am I going to get canceled doing this? <laughs> I don't um, think so. And then um, when you're working on it with your girlfriend at the time, yeah. are you thinking at that time, wow, we're, we're really doing something special. We're going to go to the networks. We're going to sell it. What, what are you thinking? You're, what, what's your purpose of doing it? The purpose was pure just following my instincts. That's what excited me. I always try to do what's exciting. And when you talk about the advertising part, to be honest, it couldn't have been going better. I was doing Super Bowl commercials for Budweiser. I was, I didn't even have to go into the, they let me work on my boat. Like I, it was quite cushy of a setup. And with Budweiser, with all the Super Bowl work, people know your work. So people would see it. And like I had a, a real regular vehicle to have people know and like my work. So I was doing, I was very happy. Just it wasn't at some point creatively challenged. So I started, you know, through my Budweiser commercials, people in LA started to call and someone at Disney. Now there's a, there were a lot of Budweiser campaigns. You yeah. want to share which Budweiser campaign you worked on? The lizards, uh, the Budweiser lizards when they wanted to assassinate <laughs> the frogs. That was my first big thing. Uh I've done some other Little Caesars things before that, but that was when it, I moved to San Francisco. Do people think you're smoking the African babinjo weed <laughs> when you get into the room with all these billion-dollar companies and say, okay, this is my idea. We got the lizards and we got the frogs, and there's going to be an assassination. Do well, they look are, at you with, with, with like there's something wrong with you? I or? do have some funny stories about that whole world because you do have to go in and sometimes pitch. When, there are times when you go and pitch to the top people in that world you know, August Bush III, who is might as well be the king of St. Louis. He's treated like royalty. And we did have several comical pitches where it's every agency lined up one after another. He's got his helicopter running outside and you just have five minutes to pitch some ridiculous idea like I, like that. And you don't even have the exclusive. You, yeah. Every campaign, he, he pits everybody against everybody. He made, oh, man. I remember this one time. It was just the agencies were right next to each other and not just agencies, but the top agencies and with the top person there. So it's like all these legends of advertising, the biggest of big names, uh, one after another. 
and the helicopter was running. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> this is for this is like meaningful stuff for any agency to land on. As always, this has been Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. You get out the money. Drop that fancy car. All the people love you. Cause you're going far. Life is for the dreamers They have all to gain It's never quite over Till it all feels the same You pick your own poison Dig your own grave Down in the valley Fortune Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.